Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, where we will look at verses 30 to 36. In Charles Dickens' well-known novel, A Tale of Two Cities, it's a novel that takes place during the turbulent days before and during the French Revolution, the book opens with the famous lines characterizing the irony and the paradox of this time period. Perhaps these are familiar words. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, and we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, and we were all going direct the other way. What Dickens is saying is that everything seemed like it was going well with the French rulers and elites, the monarchy, but in reality, everything was about to be overthrown. And where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus' disciples are going through a very similar experience as described by Dickens. These were the worst of times. The Roman Empire is ruling harshly over the Jewish people, but it was the best of times. God had sent them the long-awaited Messiah, the promised king, and he would save them from this rule and oppression. It was the best of times. There they were with Jesus in Matthew 26, where we left off last week, having a meal in Jerusalem. This had to have been one of the greatest meals they ever had. But in another sense, it was the worst of times. Jesus is talking at this meal about how one of them will betray him and that he would be delivered up to his death. But what they didn't realize is that through this betrayal and through this death, Jesus would be enthroned as king and save and save them from a much harsher rule than the Roman Empire because it was through his death that he would save them from the power of sin and Satan himself. So much like Charles Dickens. It was a time of great darkness, yet it was also a time of great light shining all around them. With that in mind, let's read our passage to capture the mood and the paradoxes of Matthew 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Your one big idea summary, I think, for this passage and this message is that 
Though Jesus' disciples would deny him, they did so so that you and I could deny ourselves. Though Jesus' disciples would deny Jesus, they did so as part of God's overarching, paradoxical, ironic plan so that you and I could deny ourselves. One of the key themes throughout the entire Bible is that things are not always as they seem to be. And the Bible is filled with divine ironies because God works with humans in paradoxical ways. So we need to be aware of the ironic nature of God's ways. Every time you read the Bible, every morning that you have a devotional or you engage with the scriptures, you need to realize that it is a kind of message that is turning our worlds upside down. And the more we're aware of this ironic nature of God's ways, the more you and I will helped, be helped to not be discouraged when bad events are happening in our lives. That's the fundamental takeaway for each of us, is that the more we understand the way God works as we encounter the scriptures, the more you're going to better assess the world around you, read the news, process the events in your life. What may appear to many non-Christians in the world as a positive upturn, we find in the Bible is actually, in God's plans and ways, the beginning of a downturn and the start of a process of judgment. And for many of us, Christians in this room, many of you have experienced what is the start of a, of a very significant downturn in your life, at least on the surface. But as time goes on, you see the way that it's an upturn of God's great blessing in your life. And so this is why the Bible is filled and scattered with phrases like, we walk by faith and not by sight. Those who are last will actually be first. And those who are first will actually be last. Those who are mighty will be brought low and the humble will be exalted. When we are weak, then in fact, we are strong. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, then he must become foolish so that he can truly become wise. And if you wish to be great, then you must become a servant. And if you wish to be first, you must be a slave of all. Or as in 2 Corinthians, all of these paradoxes get summarized in this beautiful kind of poetic part of the letter. Both by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet fully known to God, as dying yet we live, as punished but not to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor but made rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. That's the spirit of not just our passage but really the last chapters of Matthew. The big idea then again is that though Jesus' disciples would deny him, this was done by the plan and purpose of God so that you and I could deny ourselves. What seems like a dark and ominous occasion is actually the path and the light to glory and victory. So let's look at the passage again and see if you can see what I've just summarized, starting in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I really think that's the end of last week's passage, which is why I included it at the end of last week's message. But as we see this bridge between them finishing the Lord's Supper meal, that Passover, that 
strange Passover, but not Passover. They finished singing a hymn as we know that they often did, singing Psalms 113 to 118. And then they went out to the Mount of Olives, meaning they left the room in Jerusalem, and then now they're heading out of the city of Jerusalem, and they're in um, the place where Jesus had given that long discourse in chapter 24 and 25. And so what we see is that our passage begins with them singing. And they're singing, perhaps, I think based on an educated guess from the tradition of the Jewish faith, what we talked about last week is they're singing Psalm 118, which is a song or hymn about a rejected stone. Our passage begins with a song with them singing about a rejected stone, followed by the builders rejecting what would become the cornerstone. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 118. Let me just show you exactly what I mean. Psalm 118, starting at the end of the passage, I want to read starting in verse 19. So if in fact they're singing the traditional hymns at the Passover like we would expect, and it says they just sang a hymn, more than likely they finished off with these words. And starting in verse 19, we see these words, open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's a familiar line because the New Testament passages, Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, and even earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus quotes this passage to talk about himself. And here's the picture. You have a bunch of builders, and they're trying to build a building. And they go out to a rock quarry, and they're trying to see what will be the stones that will be the, the bottom foundational stones, the cornerstones of their building. And as they're looking through the quarry of all of the different options, they say, that one's good, that one's no good, that one's good. And that little picture in the psalm that Jesus and his disciples are singing about is a prophetic word of saying that there will be a stone that the builders overlook and say, yeah, not that one. But that rejected, overlooked stone will actually be the cornerstone of God's building and his temple and his foundational kingdom. So they begin with a song, and they're singing in verse 30 about a rejected stone. And sure enough, the next few verses tell us that these very builders of God's kingdom, these disciples of Jesus, are rejecting the cornerstone of that kingdom. And this is what we see in verse 31. Go back to Matthew 26, look at verse 31. Then Jesus predicted this. He said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will stri strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Our passage begins with a song about a rejected stone with the fulfillment of that rejection by his own disciples. It continues in verse 31 with a prophecy of fulfillment, a fulfillment about a shepherd who would be struck, struck down, followed by a prophecy that that same shepherd would be raised, raised up to new life. 
So there's a fulfillment of prophecy about the shepherd, but then there's a fulfillment of prophecy about the flock. That when the shepherd is struck, the flock will scatter. Followed by a prophecy of that same flock, as Jesus predicts, will be gathered together again in Galilee. Did you see that flow? Jesus says, you will all fall away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So a prophecy of a shepherd that struck down with a promise from Jesus that he would be raised up. A prophecy about a flock scattering with only saying that after he is raised up, we will all gather together in Galilee. The terminology here is, is, I think, worth highlighting. The words you see in your English Standard Version, if you're reading and following along with the Bible in front of me, is you will all fall away. And it's the word in the Greek language that we get our English word scandal, or to be scandalized. The terminology that Jesus uses is the word that literally refers to a stone. Hence, Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. He then says, if we were to read it literally, we had sung a hymn, and they sang a hymn, probably Psalm 118, about a stone that would be rejected, would become the cornerstone. Verse 31, then Jesus said to them, you will stumble on the stone of me. That's the words of Jesus right after they sing Psalm 118. The disciples will be stumbling on Jesus. In Leviticus 19.14, you could read this in the Greek translation, that Israel is commanded not to lay a scandal or a stone in front of a blind man, lest he fall and trip over it. All the disciples then are the blind men, not seeing what's right in front of them. They are tripping over Jesus. Instead of him becoming the rock of refuge that they find their security, they find him a stone of stumbling that they trip over like foolish blind men. This is the specific prophecy that Jesus has in mind, and it comes from Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 13. We just read it earlier. I hope you could find it. Let's turn again to Zechariah chapter 13 and read this once more so we can see in context how Jesus is interpreting his life and the disciples in light of the Old Testament story, which as you're turning there, this is just an important moment for you to learn how to read your Bible. This is not just a little, oh, that's an interesting thought. This is the key to understand what in the world is going on in our passage. Anytime you see a New Testament author or Jesus himself, quote the Old Testament, this is where you need to get like these big time, big eyes, perk up your ears and say, I need to figure out what's going on here. Because in the understanding of how he is applying the old to the new, then you will see how the whole story fits together. So here we are, Zechariah chapter 13. Let me read the passage again, starting in verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. That's our passage that Jesus quotes. And then it goes on, and it says, I will turn my hand against the little ones, and the whole land declares the Lord. Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and I will refine them as one refines silver, and test them 
as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. All right, let's try and make sure we're wrapping our minds around it. We'll just walk through it slowly and hopefully you follow along. Zechariah is probably not one of your favorite books of the Bible. Let's just be honest. Minor prophets, and to us, they have minor significance, which is a shame. But aware of that scenario, let's just understand that Zechariah has been, since chapter 11, talking about a shepherd king. That's the theme. There's a shepherd king that will be placed over Israel. And here in our passage, it says that this shepherd king, not just in chapter 13, but throughout this latter half of Zechariah's prophecy, he talks about how this shepherd king would be rejected. This shepherd king would suffer. This shepherd king would be struck, as we see in chapter 13, verse 7. And then when he's struck, the people people will be scattered. Now, if we're Zechariah, and we're prophesying in the time that Zechariah is around, what would the scattering illusion or metaphor point to? And if you're understanding this within its context, he's talking about there's a shepherd king, he'll be struck, and when the king is struck, the people will be exiled. That's the picture of Zechariah chapter 13. In Zechariah, the scandal and the stumbling is not permanent, though. Do you see that in our text? They will scatter, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. So now he's referring to the people of Israel. He's saying that they are weak, they're little, they're going to be judged, and I'm turning my hand against them. But it doesn't end with doom and gloom. There's a word of hope, a message of refining and purifying. In verse 8, he says, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, but there will be a remnant. A third of the people will be left alive. And I will put this third, this remnant, they will go through the fire and they will be refined like one refines silver. They will be tested as gold is tested. And then those remnants, those that persevere, they will call upon my name and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Therefore, I think it's safe to conclude that when Jesus quotes this text, he is not saying that the stumbling of the disciples is a permanent falling away or a losing of salvation or any kind of term that you'd want to throw into the text. The Old Testament passage is quite clear. There will be a remnant. God will save his people. There will be deliverance in the future, even though there is judgment coming. So Jesus sees this scenario as a prediction of what the disciples are about to do. Their faithful, faithlessness to Jesus is being described in terms like scattering, purifying, and then regathering. Like the fires of exile, they'll be purged and purified so that they could become a new Israel and a new kingdom. And when, when Jesus applies these words, this would be the simplest kind of summary way to think of it. He is predicting that he is not only the shepherd king, but he is the embodiment of all that Israel is and has done. And therefore, just like them, he will and his disciples will go through their own little mini exile. And eventually, they will return from Babylon and the disciples will gather together, regathered as purified to establish the new kingdom of God on the earth. Friends, this is the way God always works, which is why Jesus is saying, just like in the Old Testament, 
a little mini exile is about to happen here. There's going to be a, a shepherd that's struck, and the sheep will scatter, but God will save them and he will restore them and he will make sure that, that through that purification, a greater and more blessed outcome will be the result. So then, take heart. Learn the lessons. Put on the spectacles that are the scriptures of how God deals with us in this world. This is the way the glory of God appears. He glorifies his people and extends his kingdom, not in a straight direct line, but as we might call a crooked path, a path from glory, a path to glory and to life and health and safety through death, exile, scattering, waters, wilderness. Glory is never just straight from one thing to another. It comes through the other side of the cross. If you want to come to the bright, shining sun of the morning day, you have to get through the darkness of the night. And this is exactly what Jesus is predicting will happen, not only in his disciples, but I think even in his own death. So let's look back at Matthew 26 and see this in the final words of our passage. Starting in verse 33, Peter answers him, Though they all fall away because of you, I would never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the disciples said the same thing as Peter and agreed. Oh yes, we'll never deny you. So the paradoxes continue. There is a confident promise from Peter and his disciples, we will never deny you, Jesus, followed by Jesus giving them a certain prediction. You will, not just when the rooster crows, it's probably a more of a metaphor about something that happens in the middle of the night in terms of like a Jewish idiom. It's like, it's going to happen like in the next corner turn of the chapter. This is happening this very night, as Jesus says. So you have a confident promise, we'll never deny you with Jesus giving them a certain prediction that they will. There's a willingness from every single disciple, with Peter representing all of them with this very proud, bombastic speech, a willingness from all of them to say, we will die for you, Jesus. And when our passage finally ends and Matthew's gospel concludes, we see that after they say, we will die for Jesus, it is in fact Jesus himself who is the one that will die for his disciples. And I think the word deny here is crucial, similar to our word about stumbling. It's used in Matthew in two contexts. When he's talking about the denial of Jesus here and later, and earlier in Matthew's gospel when he's commanding his disciples to deny themselves and take up their cross. That's the only two times Matthew uses the word deny. So I think this leads us to our, our big idea. There's two choices. As far as Jesus is concerned, you can either deny yourself and take up your cross and die to yourself and follow Jesus, give up all hope of security and safety, or you deny Christ. Two choices, deny oneself or deny Jesus. The disciples in this moment fail. They do not deny themselves. They deny Christ. And this is why I say, in the big idea. They would deny Jesus, but they did so as a part of God's overarching plan so the disciples would lead to give us the ability to deny ourselves. It's 
as I said, the way God works. It's the gospel. The whole story of the Bible is summed up in this way. Beginning in the Garden of Eden, the damnation and the exile and the scattering of Adam and Eve from the blessed holiness of being in God's presence was actually part of what turned into the salvation on the mountain of Calvary. What do I mean by that? Just think about the scenario that we were just in. Jesus is eating, and he takes bread, and he takes a cup, and he says, eat, this is my body, and this is my blood. Just as Adam's eating and Eve were eating to their death, a rejection of God's commandments, a disobedience, a high treason against the holy king of the universe, so Jesus Christ inaugurated a ritual of eating to symbolize the means by which we would gain life. Eat this bread and drink this cup. Or put it another way, it was the tree, the tree in the middle of a garden that appeared to lead to life and to glory. And that tempting tree led to death and exile for Adam and Eve and all of us separated from God. This is the state by which all of us find ourselves, as we're born into this world as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. The tree that tempted them to eat and led to their death is the same tree in the middle of all of our decisions as we too take and hold the fruit, eat of the tree, and choose death ourselves. But in God's glorious grace, Jesus Christ appeared on another tree, a tree that would lead to his death, but to our salvation, to our life and our glorification. Paul nicely summarizes this in Galatians chapter 3. He says, Christ became a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come. Now, not only is that a helpful passage to think about the ironic reversal of the cross, But I think this understanding of the cursedness of Christ also helps us understand why the disciples denied Jesus in the first place. You see, the cross was a punishment that was reserved for the most heinous of criminals. In the Old Testament, too, when Jewish people would have been executed by the death penalty, it would have been only those who were like murderists and rapists and all kinds of terrible crimes These would have been the people that would have hung on a tree. So cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And it seems to me that the reason why Jesus was rejected and why Peter is so bold to say, no, no, we will die for you. is because they had no idea that it would be the death of Jesus hanging on a tree in the place of the most heinous criminals. And the symbol of the worst of the world becomes the symbol of life and salvation and forgiveness for all of our sins And so I think that we should understand the death of Jesus in this ironic turn of reversals and understand that the the disciples were, in some ways, correctly understanding their Old Testament. How, How could the blessed, most glorious person of all of Israel, the anointed Messiah, be the one who at the same time is hanging on a tree by Roman soldiers, cursed, seen as abominable? We need to realize that faithful Jews who confessed that God's Messiah was hanging on a tree? This is blasphemous. And that's why Paul elsewhere says, a crucified Messiah is to all Jewish people 
a scandalon, or the same word, a stone that we stumble over, a stumbling block. And a true believer in Jesus Christ, if you're here today and you're a Christian, it's because you have exchanged the wisdom of this world for the foolishness of the cross. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, the main difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, in so many words, is that you're still following the wisdom of this world, and you have not embraced what appears to be foolishness. The plans of God on the surface seem quite foolish. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, many search for wisdom, but it is we who preach Christ crucified. To Gentiles, this is foolishness, but to us, it is the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than all men. I want you to think about your life right now and think to what extent you're trusting in the wisdom of the world instead of the foolishness of God, at least as it appears on the surface. Paul says that the word of cross is foolishness to all those who are perishing, and that's because Jesus Christ himself, as the shepherd who is struck, is the prime example of the way death turns to life and defeat becomes victory. The greatest weakness of all for each of us, the greatest fear of all, the reason why we're wearing masks and the why coronavirus is such a thing is because of death. The greatest weakness, the worst thing that could happen to us, death, ironically becomes Jesus' greatest strength and the best thing that could happen to him and to you and to me. It defeats sin, Satan. It defeats death, the death of death. As the great Puritan John Owen once wrote, the death of death in the death of Christ. Shortly after this scene, Roman soldiers will mock the bleeding Jesus and ironically say what? Hail, King of the Jews. When I was thinking about that, it reminded me of the story by Mark Twain. Have you heard of the famous short story, The Prince and the Pauper. It's about two young boys, Prince Edward, who's the son of King Henry VIII, and an insignificant, no-named, poor pauper. Both of these boys were born on the exact same day. And the pauper, as you read the story, has this desire to always want to be the king and dreams of what that would be like. And so one day, he forces his way into the palace in an attempt to meet with and talk to Prince Edward. He was apprehended by the guards, and when Prince Edward saw this incident, he actually decided to tell the guards, no, 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 let him in. I would like to meet with him alone. He heard the desires of the pauper and how he'd always wanted to be a prince, and so Edward agreed. He said, how about we switch clothes? And you could feel just for a moment what it would be like to be dressed like a king. So they changed clothes. And right after they switched changing their clothes, they discovered that they looked exactly alike. And right then, someone interrupts this little get-together. Prince Edward is then misjudged as the beggar, and he then is thrown out of the palace. As the story goes on, Edward is walking through the streets of England, proclaiming to various people that are passing by that he is the prince of England. But everybody laughs at him makes fun of him. And for some time, Edward continued to live a pauper's life with the nobility in his heart and knowing his identity as a king. And then his father dies. 
King Henry VIII. And Edward claims the crown. Edward, the pauper, dressed like a pauper, proclaims to the crowds and to everyone around him, I'm the king. And what does he get? Scorn and ridicule, derision. He appears only to them as a pauper, but really, he was the king. Finally, he is recognized, but only after he had to go through scorn and shame as a nobody. Do you see how this fictional story, this ironic twist and turns, pictures Jesus Christ and his life on earth? He appears to many as a pauper, with no place to lay his head. He becomes the one that nobody wants to behold, and they want to turn their face because he has no beauty or majesty. He appears as a pauper throughout all of his earthly days, but really, truly, he wasn't just a prince, he was the king sent by God. I hope you can see how, not just that story, but the greater story that it points to, applies to your life. Do you see how today's message, the concepts of divine ironies, helps you make sense of the world that you're living in? Look around you. Adversity, afflictions, failures, every day will be presented before you day after day. And these things will never be the true indicator of someone's heart or their relationship with God or whether they are on the upturn or downturn of God's blessing or judgment. But friends, this is the way that you and I are deceived by the wisdom of this world to filter in so many of the things that are going on in our life. We got a new job. We got a new house. We got married. All of the things that we think, oh, blessing and, and good things are in my life. Surely I must be right with God. Friends, this is not true. Fruit of our character is not the same thing as the fruit of our possessions and the blessings of this life. This is why many people get fooled and deceived by pastors and church leaders, because they look on the outside and think, well, surely his church is big. He must be a man of God. But behind the scenes, he's embezzling the church's funds. He's committing adultery with his secretary, and so on and so forth the stories go. Don't confuse ministry fruit with spiritual fruits of the Spirit. Things are not always as they seem. God's ways are not our ways. They are much higher. So whether we are in this present life or the one that is to come, God is and will be always working for his people in an ironic, divine twists and turns, turning what we meant for evil for his good, turning our curses into blessings, and your temporary adversities and challenges into eternal prosperity. Do you believe that? My guess is that many days you don't. And it's the reason why we struggle. While we struggle with God and get angry at him, it's the reason we feel depressed and discouraged and upset. How come them and not me? And I'd encourage you to spend time today, this week, in relationships within this church and reflect to what extent you're using the wisdom of this world to think about prosperity and blessing as somehow the direct correlation to God's blessing in your life. In this way, my friends, all of us are being affected by the prosperity gospel.
That's not just those preachers out there. It's those preachers in here, in your heart and mine. And for this, we need to realize we may be denying Jesus ourselves too if we continue on that path. Remember, the way up is down. And the way to victory is through defeat. Do you really believe it? It's hard. And for that, we need the Spirit. And we need this church. And we need community to continue to remember that this is the way God works. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come now in the name of your Son, Jesus, and we pray that the Holy Spirit of God would pour out upon us the illumination in our mind, in our heart, to see what we cannot see with our eyes. We want to pray that we would be able to see the way you see the world, God. See David as a small boy that everybody looks over and say, man, looks at the outward appearance, but God, he looks at the heart. I pray that in the same way, we too would be filled with that way of seeing one another, the kingdom of God, to be able to sift through news headlines as we see all of the events unfolding in our lives and think, oh, this must be judgment. And I pray that all of the things that are going on day to day, moment to moment, we would remember You're on your throne and your ways are good and that you are a good God. And for that, we give you thanks. We give you praise. And as we sang earlier, all glory be to Jesus Christ, our King, who reigns and rules over every square inch of planet Earth. We pray this in his name. Amen.